be seated. I'm going to invite up our, our guest pastor, Pastor Luke Peterson. Let me tell you just a little bit about him. You may already have heard some from the announcements, but uh, Pastor Peterson is the pastor of, is it Emmanuel Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia. It's one of the newest churches to join our association, the Reformed Baptist Network. And uh, he has served as a missionary in Nicaragua and in Costa Rica. So he spoke, he spoke three messages already at our uh, men's retreat. He'll be preaching for us today. He's going to be giving a testimony a little bit about the work that uh, he's done in uh, Nicaragua and Costa Rica, as well as the work in Virginia during Sunday school in Spanish. And he'll be preaching in Spanish, so he has a busy day. But please welcome up our guest pastor, Pastor Peterson. Well, dear brethren, it is such a joy and a privilege for me to be here with you. I cannot express my gratitude and my thankfulness to be able to come and minister the Word of God to you this morning. I do bring fraternal greetings from your brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Baptist Church in Verona, Virginia, as well as my two fellow elders, Pastor Greg McGonigal and Andrew McCaskill. But please rest assured of our prayers for you, for this congregation. Our prayer has been that we could get to know our sister churches better in tangible ways, but also that we could collaborate with them in all things of the Great Commission and the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord continue to use our churches together for the cause of Christ to see his name exalted among the nations. But having said that, I want you to draw your attention now. If you have your Bible, please open it up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Really what we're going to see today are two things that are vital for any true church of Jesus Christ. They are a united heart and a united purpose. A united heart and a united purpose. Let us now read Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 46 and 47. That will be our focus, our scope of the text today. But let us set our faces now to the most holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of God. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, I do recognize that we are jumping right into this passage. We've been doing an exposition of Acts in our church, but you guys have not. So perhaps I could help you with a little bit of context just to catch you up to speed. Now, I do believe Acts chapter 2 is perhaps one of the most important chapters, if not the most important in all of scriptures, at least in my opinion. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 2, just after Peter's sermon at Pentecost, the preaching of repentance in the name of Christ to all who would believe. And beloved, the same is true today, not just in the time of the apostles. Anyone who turns to Christ by faith will be saved. Next, we see that these new disciples commit themselves to honor God by keeping His commandments. In doing so, they give themselves completely to the public worship of God. Look with me at verse 41. There we read, So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 
thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now here are the four pillars of worship. The preaching of the word, right? We see that in the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, the ordinances of the local church, prayer and fellowship. This koinonia, as the word is here given to us, this giving of themselves to God and to one another. But wait, there's more. From there we hear of this fear of the living God coming upon all people. Not just those newly converted disciples, but even those who are outside of the church of Christ. Can you imagine that? The fear of God descending upon our communities for the work that He has done. Verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And then they continued together, brothers and sisters, in God's grace with an abundance of generosity toward one another. Verse 44 and 45, And all who believed were together and all had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now here, this is not a reference to socialism, but to Christian generosity. Which brings us now to verses 46 and 47. Our main text for our time in the Word this morning. Our sermon will have two divisions. If you like to take notes, perhaps this will be helpful. Two main themes are going to emerge, resulting in two prominent points. The first, found in verse 46, is the united heart of God's people. The united heart of God's people. And then secondly, God willing, we'll see the united purpose of God's people. The united purpose of God's people. So with the promise of God's help by His Holy Spirit, let us now set our faces to the exposition of His Word. Now I want to read, and in our church we use the New King James, I believe you use the ESV here. But I want to read the New King James to perhaps help give some additional light of what's going on here in verse 46. So if you have the New King James, uh, you can read along, but if not, bear with me. There we read, so continuing daily with one accord... In the temple, in breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now, verse 46 takes up similar themes and concepts that Acts 2 has presented before. That is, these disciples, these who were committed to the body of Christ in the local church, they continued daily, one with another. There was a spirit of unity, a shared heart, a shared purpose. The original language indicates to us an expression that they were engaged in meeting in the temple. They were engaged in breaking bread from house to house. And they were engaged in that fellowship with one another. Yet, in fact, this is the, day, the same daily continuation of the same concept in Acts 1. Look with me in Acts 1, chapter, or Acts 1 verse 14. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. 14. There we read, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication, and with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And then back to verse 42 of chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this word in the original connotes to us, gives us an idea of devoting oneself to something. 
We could even say it, albeit it's, it might come across as negative, that this is someone who is obstinately persisting in something and persevering. It is illustrated simply to us by thinking of someone who is always stuck in their own ways. Now, I know you guys don't know anybody like that, but that's the idea for us. Someone who never wants to change. They do what they want. You have even given up even trying to persuade him to give up his stance and his position. But here, on the other hand, in our text, this is not a negative meaning, but a commendable one. These disciples, what is going on here is they had their faces set to worship. The worship of God. They were captivated by that heavenly vision of what it meant to commune with God in the presence of God with the people of God. They even went persistently up into the temple. When any religious service was being held, they were steadfast. And when they went to meet with God's people from house to house, they were relentless in that they broke bread from these houses. They were unwavering and being dissuaded from participating in that fellowship. Those special and sweet moments of communion among God's people. Oh, if the Lord's people were this persistent today in the things of God. Can you imagine, brothers and sisters, the effects of, on our churches our communities, and even our world, if we operated with this mindset, this feeling, and this kind of heart, just hearing it, hearing about it, should stir us on further to these kinds of good works. But now the question comes this morning, my dear brothers and sisters, can this be said of you? Do you value and esteem these principles in the very same way that these early disciples did. Let's say it this way. If someone were to stop and take a moment and observe the way in which you live your life among God's people, in his house, and even in your own home, would they conclude that you yourself persist steadfastly in the things of God? What priority do these things have in your own life? But I want to encourage you, my dear brother or sister, at this point. If you are lacking in this area, cry out to God, for he will help you. If you are truly his child, pray that he will give you these desires, these longings, so that you will not stagnate in your own ways, but rather persevere in the ways of God. And my dear brethren, may you who continue to do these things be faithful in them. Do not give up. Persevere in them. Continue to abound abundantly in these good works and exhort and encourage your brothers and sisters in Christ to come alongside with you. For it is a special work of God. It is a gift from above that only the Spirit can grant to us. Now, I do want to make a brief note here because there are a variety of godly men who share a different opinion on exactly what's happening here in verse 46. From verse 42... Right? I believe the text is teaching us that this breaking of bread as used here is a reference to the Lord's Supper. But if we are taking this as speaking of the Lord's Supper, we must explain why the disciples take the Lord's Supper in their homes instead of the church and why they continue to celebrate it daily. Now, as I've said many times in our own church through our exposition of the book of Acts, it's wise for us to remember that we are at that embryonic stage of development for the church here in Acts chapter 2. Also, there was no such place, when you think about it, that could hold thousands of new converts at one time. So out of necessity, they began to meet in homes for 
worship, and especially the Lord's Day worship. This would be divided perhaps among those in the congregation or among those who were converted who were wealthier. They would be host, and perhaps some of the larger places could accommodate a couple hundred people. But these disciples were not satisfied with worshiping just one day a week. They were hungry, and they were thirsty to gather to worship God, thus giving rise to a daily meeting in these local house congregations. It was not, though, as if a few of these Christians were saying, well, let's get a couple of us together and take the Lord's Supper together on our own authority. That's not what's going on here. The church, though divided by necessity, was gathered, the church gathered in these homes. Something else, though, we need to keep in mind is that there was always a proper precedence and order. Remember, it was the apostles and only those men who were delegated the authority to preach and preside over these things that did. They had Christ's authority to preach, to administer the Lord's Supper, and presumably we see them doing it day by day. Much work awaited the twelve, as we will see. But there are many things, and here is a very important point for us to remember when we're in the book of Acts, that simply describe an action. They do not prescribe us to follow it exactly. And I think we have one here. That is, the Lord's Supper should be appropriately observed in the Lord's Day when we're gathered together. And we also know that it's not reasonably possible for us to gather every single day of the week, even though it's a wonderful and great thing. So we see that connection with the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper. And out of necessity, they were gathering so frequently and so often. But having said this, I don't want us to get distracted by the general thrust and point of this particular verse. Remember, we have been talking about a united heart for God's people. Notice that, as I read from the New King James, they did it with one accord. That is to say, with singleness of heart. These two concepts really frame verse 46 forth. The ESV translates it as together. Uh, the NASB translates it day by day, continuing with one mind. There is a oneness about the people of God. So what does it mean to persevere with one accord, together with one mind? We're not talking about merely a concept or even a feeling, but a biblically grounded perspective and a spirit-empowered connection among the brethren. Notice that they did it with one accord and singleness of heart. In the original, the basic idea behind one accord is with one mind, together unanimously in unity. It is not just indicating that the disciples were physically present together. They were also together in body, mind, soul, and spirit. And this togetherness is always grounded in the Word of God. As one has stated for us, this is a unique Greek word here. Ten of its twelve New Testament occurrences are in the book of Acts, which helps us to understand the uniqueness of the Christian community. It is a compound of two words meaning to rush along and also in unison. Now, I want to give you a visual here perhaps to help you understand this, this word, this concept. The visual nearly has a musical quality to it for us. Several separate notes are heard, but then they all harmonize together in pitch and in tone. The Holy Spirit unifies the lives of Christ's followers in the church in a similar way. And that, and the, that the instruments or of a grand orchestra are brought together under the guidance of a grand concert master. It's beautiful, isn't it, when we think of it that way. Wonderful, a special miracle 
brought about only by the Holy Spirit. But wait, we have more in this text. The text also tells us there was a simplicity of heart. Uh, We could say this being humility, uh, sincerity, the state of being singular or unified quality. In the King James, it says they did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Now, I'd invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 32. And here, we're going to be able to witness how this singleness of heart was prophesied back even then. Jeremiah chapter 32. And we'll be in beginning in verse 38. Jeremiah 32, verse 38, and I'll read through verse 41. The word of the Lord reads, And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put fear, the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all of my heart and all of my soul. Here even the prophet Jeremiah predicted the forthcoming of this united heart of the people of God. And we see so much of this fulfilled, not only in the book of Acts, but even today in our churches with the Spirit's help. But notice also what accompanied those hearts. Gladness. They were glad. They were exulting. They were extremely joyful. They could not contain themselves. They rejoiced greatly and they had that abundant gladness. The same kind of joy and gladness of heart that comes as we read in other places in Scripture at the news of our Savior coming into this world. Luke 1.14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. The same joy and gladness that comes upon the people of God when they receive the benediction or blessing of God poured out on them due to the work of Christ. Elsewhere, we see this in Jude 24, where we read, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. A heart that is glad due to the work of God, his provision, his love, his mercy, his salvation, all of these wonderful things that we possess by faith if we are in Christ. And I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, Christians should be the happiest and most joyful of all of God's creatures. Look at all that we have. Look at who is on our side and who is for us. Look at this great and wonderful salvation. The great lengths and extents that that God went in order to send His only Son to deliver us from the domain of darkness. When we struggle to have joy in our lives, brothers and sisters... The problem is that we are looking too much at the things of this world. And we are not looking enough at our wonderful and beautiful Savior. We need those eyes of faith so that we may have that eternal heavenly vision constantly set before our eyes. Colossians 3 and 1 describes this to us. 
It says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What is it that brings us joy, brothers and sisters? It's Jesus. It's Christ. Well, what is it that now unites us? Well, it's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the good news that has great effects. And please, dear ones, if you find yourself lost in this place today, unknown to Christ, if you find that your heart is cold and callous, then look no further. The King is here, and He beckons you to come to Him to receive an abundant inheritance, everlasting life. And it's available for all who thirst. This permanent joy is a promise of the gospel. It is the gospel of peace that is presented to us here. And you must come. Come by faith. Turn from your sins, the very least of them to the greatest of them. And come and believe in the Savior. So I ask you, have you done that? And even you little ones here, you young ones, you're not too young to come to the Lord Jesus Christ to believe in his name. The gospel is even for you. I know many times it's hard to listen to a sermon, especially if you're little and young, but I want you to pay special attention to these moments. Jesus is even telling you to come to him by faith. You're not too young to listen to this message. You're not too young to respond to the gospel, but listen to the promises of eternal life. He promises to be your God if by faith you turn unto Him. But also, my dear brother and sister, I don't want you to check out on me on this point. The gospel is for Christians too. The gospel is for us. It's not just a one-time thing that we heard and then we never contemplate or consider it again. Every moment, we are called to continually remember, to believe, and live out faithfully the gospel. It has permanent and lasting effects in our lives. It is that compass by which we must continue to travel on our way until we arrive at the celestial city. It is the guide for this life, informing us of how we must be faithful to God until our very last breath. So is the gospel precious to you, my dear brother or sister? Are you living a life now that adorns the gospel? And is it bringing you joy? In every single circumstance, every trial and affliction, turn your eyes upon Jesus. The gospel must be to the Christian as a beautiful pendant or necklace that is worn around your neck. It is the most beautiful necklace for all the world to see. And it must be worn openly and winsomely to all of the world. The gospel is that light which we don't want to hide under a bushel, nor can we. And it is only that gospel that unites us in heart. There is even good news here, right? That, that we are united in this singleness of heart due to the glorious gospel of Christ. It is that same promised heart and mind that we heard from the prophet Jeremiah. Now up until this point, we have seen this united heart that accompanies all true believers in Christ. Now let's look secondly and finally to this united purpose for the people of God. Said another way, a united heart set upon the Lord Jesus brings a united purpose as its fruit. Look with me in verse 47 of Acts 2, again, turning back there. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. 
There we read, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Here we see it, don't we? Here is the united purpose of the people of God. That, that, that they should strive after this diligently with all their hearts, souls, and minds and strength. This purpose has three dimensions. We could call it three sides of the same triangle of purpose. First, it is the purpose of praising God. Worshiping Him truly for who He is according to, to His Word. Remember Acts 2.42. Listen to John Gill. He says here, not only for their temporal mercies and enjoyments of life, which they partook of in so delightful and comfortable a manner, but for their spiritual mercies. That the Lord had been pleased to call them by His grace to reveal Christ to them and pardon them who had been such vile sinners. Give them a name and a place in His house and favor them with the ordinances of it. In such agreeable and delightful company as the saints were, they had fellowship with. Brothers and sisters, it is our solemn duty, but also our chief privilege to come and worship our God. While we do not meet publicly every day of the week, like it's taking place here, we are still called to make it our daily business of worshiping God. Listen to Matthew Henry. He says, They were daily in the temple, not only on the days of the Sabbaths, on the solemn feast, but on other days, every day. Worshiping God is to be our daily work. And where there is opportunity, the oftener it is done publicly, the better. God loves the gates of Zion, and so should we. Second, the second purpose that we see, first we saw the praise of God, worshiping God. Secondly, we observe that we're called to engage in the purpose of having favor among the people. We could say it in this way, being winsome to those who do not know Christ. It is a way of speaking and behaving about Christ that is attractive to all people. Those inside and outside of the church. They had favor. We could say they were a pleasing aroma to those who were outside. And our goal with unbelievers should be attractive in nature. Not with the intention of purposely trying to offend them. Look at the apostles' attitude toward public preaching. Look at the way that the disciples are living their lives out. Look at how they are adorning the gospel of Christ to be winsome with the unconverted. And we must do likewise. We must be winsome in our approach with the gospel. But brothers and sisters, this does not mean that we compromise. And the apostles are great examples of this, are they not? We maintain conviction. We preach with passion and heart for those lost souls. And I believe in order for us to be winsome, we must pray that, the heart, that our hearts would, would agonize over every lost soul, knowing that anyone without Christ will certainly perish in their sins. And suffer the eternal torments of hell. One of my all-time favorite quotes comes from Charles Spurgeon. And he says it this way. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. Let no one go unwarned and unprayed for. We must have that, that heart for the lost among us. Third and finally, in this purpose, and here this is connected to the second, the, the third purpose is that this heart leads to a striving after the conversion of sinners. 
This is the united purpose of the people of God here, that they want to see sinners saved. Matthew Poole says, The Lord added to the church, salvation is only from the Lord. Not Peter's sermons, no, nor the miracles of the fiery cloven tongues and the rushing mighty wind could have converted any. But that which is signified here, the powerful operation of the Spirit of God in their hearts. The church has its united purpose in seeing lost sons of Adam converted to living sons of God. The people, notice, did not just stay in their homes. They went up to the temple. What were they doing? Well, they're bearing witness for Christ within the community. Notice here that though they continue to meet together in these smaller home congregations, they are still making strident efforts to get out into the community in order that the gospel is preached and heard. And it brought much encouragement to my own soul to hear that you guys are giving efforts to do this as an example here. But they don't stop there. They continue to further increase out to the ends of the earth. As Acts is a commentary of that taking place for us. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Look there with me. Acts 1 verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here, we have the focus of these saints and every true local church of Christ. A dedication to the pure worship of God, having favor among the people, and an earnest desire to see sinners saved. But this, I believe, leads us to ask the question, what is the mission of the church? Why has God left us here on the earth after our conversion? I'm not sure if you ever asked yourself that question. Well, brothers and sisters, it is so that we may continue to praise and worship God and then be the means that God uses to save all of the elect from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Now, we understand that not one particular local congregation can do all the work herself. This is why we need other churches laboring together for this cause and this end. As one man of God has said, God's supreme desire is for his glory to invade every square inch of the world so that every nation will worship and honor him. God intends for his church, a kingdom of priests, to mediate his glory to the nations. Now, these new converts are meeting every day in the temple indicating that, that God's glory is beginning now to fill Jerusalem with the power of the Holy Spirit. This then leads, as we will see, or as you will see if you read the rest of Acts, uh, that it plays out that the church is to be the sending agent. So now that Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth will be filled with the glory of God. This is accomplished no other way but by the Great Commission. This was the original purpose of Adam and Eve, but they failed and now it is up to the church to be obedient to our Creator. He has chosen to use His church to be the means by which every believer will be drawn in from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It's humbling, isn't it? This is what we exist for as a church. This must be our daily business, my brothers and sisters. This is to be the mark of every true church of Christ. We are to labor with sister churches in this endeavor. The church is little Edens, little temples, and she is to replicate and make more temples across the whole earth to worship God. And one day, as I've heard one man say, these temples will not be separated by distance. The whole earth will be a temple 
the dwelling place of God, thus the new heavens and the new earth. So now that we've heard these sayings, brothers and sisters, how are we to apply them? How are we to take what we have heard, to store it up in our hearts, and now practice it in our lives? The first application that I want to put before you is first there is a call to unity. A call to unity. Remain united, my dear brothers and sisters, in this church. Reject all divisions, all murmurings, all evil doings, anything that can disturb the unity of this church. We are called to be careful with our tongues, our thoughts, and even our actions among ourselves. Does not Satan want to destroy every true church of Christ? Even this one, dear brethren, Satan desires to destroy. So you must be vigilant and pursue that unity. Unity does not come by accident. Pray that God will grant you here always to have this oneness of heart. That, that unity that only comes from Christ. For this is the work of the Spirit of God. Let the Word of God guide you in every thought. We must be united always around the Word, not our preferences. And it's so important that a church understands that. Don't allow a mindset to creep in and cause division in such things that may come to pass as, well, we've never done it this way before. That, that's no concern to us, brethren. We want to know whether we are being biblical or not in all that we do. The Bible is what unites us and drives us. And this requires humility, does it not? Humility, love, long-suffering, patience, and united joy. Be united, my brothers and sisters. Carry that oneness of heart. Love Christ and His Word and His people. And delight yourself in those things that God has given to you. 1 Corinthians 1.10 Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly, perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Secondly, by way of application, I want to extend a call to each of you who are Christians, who are members of this church, a call to pursue this purpose. Will you join yourself in the mission of God? Will you pursue this purpose of seeing the nations converted to Christ? It is God's work alone. We cannot carry it out in our own strength. We must remember that it's the Lord's vineyard and we are merely his laborers. And church, every time that one of your pastors goes to places like Africa, you must remember that you are sending him. They are be being sent out from this church on behalf of the church to labor in short-term mission work. Your pastor is laboring on behalf of Grace Fellowship in Kenya and Zambia and wherever it may be. And this and that is what is required, that we must be a church that prays to this end, seeking the face of God. Expecting great things from our Father, together in private and in public, be that church that never stops praying. Not just for unity, but also to be committed to this global vision and purpose. But also pray that the Lord would raise up more laborers for His harvest. Matthew 9, 35, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest truly is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There we have it. Will we be a church united in this purpose? Or will we be divided in our congregation? Some not wanting to follow the clear pattern prescribed by scriptures. We, we, we want to make sure that we're not rejecting the word of the Lord. Will our hearts even be divided in that? Or will they be united here in this place? Beg God to give us that unity of heart in all of our churches. And brothers and sisters, I want to say this. It's not a matter, though, of to get on board or get off the train. But it's a warm invitation from our Savior to be united in heart with God's people and to be united in purpose in the church. If there is not a united heart here, then we will suffer in every church. We will suffer because we will not be faithful to the Lord. It comes with a great cost, much sacrifice, and perhaps even difficulties because we know it's difficult to be among a bunch of sinners. <laughs> but that testifies to the fact of how much we need the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter how great our sin is, we have an even greater Savior. It comes with a great cost, but it also comes with a great reward. As our Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a little, and I will make thee ruler over much. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Dear church, may God help us to be united here in heart and in purpose. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we here again are seeking Christ's help. We need help to hear these words and to receive them by faith. Give us the grace we need to believe them and to live them faithfully in our lives. Oh, we plead God, that your spirit would work mightily in our midst for the glory of Christ. And we do pray this in his name. Amen. Would you please stand with me for our closing hymn?